Um, hey, we're continuing our series this morning called Prince of Peace. We're headed towards Christmas, and uh, it's 2020. And so it's been, in many ways, a tough year. We all know that. Walking through a season of struggle, and yet it's time for us to get refocused, to make sure our eyes are on the right thing, the right person. Because though a time of a seasons of struggle come, they're not to define our lives. Uh, what defines our life is who we're connected to, the God that we serve, the God that has saved us, the God that loves us, and our focus is on him. And so maybe perhaps more than any other year that I can remember, this is a year to get this right and to get our eyes on him and to be reminded of who it is that we serve. Who is the God that we worship? And so this year, uh, looking at Isaiah chapter 9, if you want to turn in your Bible there or look on your phone in your Bible app, Isaiah 9 is the passage we're in looking at this messianic prophecy regarding the Messiah. The era we're looking at is a time in about in the 700s B.C., uh, before Christ, and we're looking at the 8th century where a prophet named Isaiah uh, came to um, prominence and position within the nation of Israel. His job was to prophesy regarding the times they lived in, and those were difficult times. When he came to prominence, uh, Israel was, uh, had lived through a number of seasons of growth and peace and prosperity. Uh, they came into the land of Canaan under Moses, certainly led them out of Egypt, and then Joshua led them into the land, and they were given this land by God that he had promised to them through Abraham, uh, the father of the Hebrew nation. And so they realized that, and then they had Saul as a king who was not a good king. David followed him, led them through a time of victory, military victory and growth and a little bit of expansion and defeating their enemies, the Philistines and others, and defending that land. And then Solomon, David's son, came to power and Solomon led them into a time of great prosperity, world prominence. Uh, Solomon was a great leader on the earth and was well known uh, around the whole earth. And, and he gained and grew the country to this stable and prosperous place. And yet the nation began to wane following Solomon and, and uh, times of struggle and a movement away from God. And so in, in Isaiah's era, Israel finds itself in a place where God is going to put them under judgment and they're going to face oppression, perhaps like never before. And so Isaiah comes to, uh, speaks for God in a time where he must give a message of judgment, a message of correction. But also, what's beautiful about Isaiah is that even in the midst of this, he still is able to give messages of hope, a message of the future when things would be restored, when God would once again rule and reign in the nation of Israel and restore the nation. And so that's where we get these famous messianic prophecies that we're looking at one of them. Isaiah's famous for these, among other things. And so uh, he, in Isaiah 9, which is the one, uh, the, the passage we're in, is a very prominent one. Isaiah 11 is another. Isaiah 53. And there are other spots throughout the, the book of Isaiah where um, this, this message begins to be seen of Messiah, of King, of someone coming. 
And so we want to look at that as we, as we head into Christmas. Obviously, Jesus is the uh, answer to these prophecies. Jesus was the fulfillment. And so in, uh, in 722, when uh, the nation of Assyria invades the northern kingdom of Israel and begins to take captive uh, those young leaders and begins to subjugate that part of the nation of Israel, um, his message of judgment becomes real. And they felt the oppression and they begin to feel the pressure of being under the correction of God. And they had to navigate that and Isaiah had to help them. And so what Isaiah began to speak about was a time of restoration, a time when a leader would come. And so Isaiah tells, in this passage we're looking at today, that the Messiah will come in humility with no pomp or circumstance. See, God's champion comes as a child. Isaiah chapter nine, verse six says this, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. Hard to overstate the importance and the significance of the manner in which God comes to earth. The manner in which God presents himself to the human race. It's easy to miss, it's easy to take for granted, it's hard to really comprehend. Jesus the Messiah came to earth in great humility. He was born to a virgin which would cast doubt on his pedigree. He was heralded by angels, but the audience were lowly shepherds. He was recognized by kings from the east, but the king of Israel, his own king, tried to kill him. He healed the sick, he forgave sins, he raised the dead, but he had no place to lay his head. He offered to lead his people to freedom from earthly taskmasters, but instead they rejected and tried and rejected and killed him. God came to us as a child so that we would need to open our eyes in order to see him and open our ears in order to hear him. A really good God would come in such a humble fashion to ensure that only the pure in heart would recognize him and so that God himself would truly get the credit. As you observe, uh, God and how he does things as you read the scriptures and watch God's pattern of behavior and activity. It's altogether different than what we do as human beings. See, we're created in the image of God and we have a, a bit of uh, the God spark in us, right? We're made in his image and we, uh, we live uh, inside of his uh, world and his universe, but we reflect him a little bit. We're, we're like him a little bit. And yet what we do because we don't have his character what we do with uh, the power that we have is altogether different. If uh, an important uh, person were to come to town and we were in charge of it, why, we'd want to make the biggest spectacle out of it that we could. We'd want everybody to know that somebody important was coming and that that important person was a friend of ours <laughs> or we were connected to them. Like, that's what we do with power and prominence and position. As human beings, we want those things to be highlighted. We think everybody should know. No one should miss this uh, event, I've heard people say that part of their struggle with Jesus being God is that he didn't come in such a way that everyone could identify and easily see that it was God. 
They say, well, why if God came to earth, if there really was a God, he would reveal, him in such, reveal himself in such a way that no one could miss it. But that is to misunderstand and miss who God is. We think of this God uh, in our image and according to our character, but he's not. Luke chapter one, leading up to the traditional Christmas story, Luke chapter two, we get a bit of revelation, the unfolding of who this Messiah would be. Isaiah prophesies 700 years before Jesus is his existence, his entrance into the earth is, is foretold by the angel Gabriel. And in Luke chapter one, starting in verse 26, Dr. Luke tells the story this way. He says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel said, or told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. And he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can, this, how can this happen? I'm a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has, been pregnant, uh, has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren. But she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. Mary responded very humbly. I am the Lord's servant. May everything you've said about me come true. And then the angel left her. God did not pick the most prominent, powerful um, person of position to use as a vessel to bring his son, God, in the flesh to earth. He chose a very humble, lowly individual who reflected the qualities and traits that he was looking for. And this is profound because when God moves, as human beings, we'll miss it because we're looking for something altogether different. But when God moves, what, what happens is he reveals himself and the evidence that he's really involved is found in his actions. And so for God to send his son, to send a baby <laughs> to a, uh, a woman of low position is exactly what the God of the universe would do. And it's what he did. See, God does things, my observation has been, he does things in such a way that when he's really doing them, and, and listen, there's some counterfeits. There's things we look at and say, God's moving you know, heard a pastor one time talking about having a worship service and the room was full and then people walk out saying, man, I really felt God there. And he joked kind of, well, you know, there was a lot of people in the room. <laughs> it was energetic, but I mean, you know, that, that's not always how we tell that God is active, right? So sometimes we see the wrong things or we can give credit to the wrong things. But when God really moves, 
If you're looking and you know who he is, he does it in such a way that you can't miss. It was him doing it. If you're open, if you really are looking, if you really understand what he's about and and his character. It's kind of like this. There's a story of a converted Hindu young man who uh, was saved uh, over in India under Hinduism. And uh, he came to Christ and he gave an address to his fellow countrymen. And you know, in India, there's a caste system that's deeply embedded. It's gone on for, uh, I think, thousands of years. And it has to do with uh, the religious beliefs. And so you have this idea that you're born at a certain level, a socioeconomic uh, position in life, and you're, you're stuck there. And uh, it's because of something you've done in the past that you don't really know about. And so if you're in a lowly position, if you're the down, down and out cast, you're stuck in that cast and you're there because of something you've done wrong in the past and you must try to make amends for that, work your way out of it, though you have no idea if you're making any progress because you don't really know, but they, the belief in reincarnation and, and all of that mixes together. And so they have these strata to control people and, and that people live inside of. And uh, this is the case in India. And so this man said, listen, by, by birth, I'm an insignificant and contemptible caste. So low that if a Brahmin, which is the upper class, should chance to just touch me, he has to go to the Ganges River and bathe for the purposes of purification. I'm so lowly, I'm so uh, contemptible that if somebody from an upper class touches me, they got to purify themselves. But he says, and yet God has been pleased to call me not merely to the knowledge of the gospel, but to the the high office of teaching it to others. My friends, do you know the reason for God's conduct? It is this, he said. If God had selected one of you learned Brahmins, made you the preacher, and you were successful in converting your fellow countrymen, bystanders would have said, it was the amazing learning of the Brahmin and the great weight of character that were the cause But he said, now when anyone is converted by my instrumentality, my efforts, no one thinks of ascribing the credit or praise to me. They give it solely to God. This is how God moves in our world. Um, And and it's because he cares. It's because he wants us to see who he really is. Jesus himself came uh, humbly, and he is humble. Remember last week we were talking about the yoke of slavery that the world puts on. And in the first couple of verses of Isaiah, um, how the Messiah would come to lift the yoke of slavery and restore the people to, uh, to live under his leadership. And it's interesting in the New Testament, Jesus says, you know, uh, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me because I am what? I am meek and humble at heart. And so this quality, this characteristic of humility is not something God wants us to show so that we're subjected to him, but it's in fact his character. He exemplifies it. He is the very definition of humility. And so it is something valuable. And in his process of coming to us, bringing leadership to us, bringing salvation to us, he did it in a humble manner because it's who he is. And if we're looking and if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we're gonna recognize the real God when he shows up, the real savior. And we're gonna look to him and be drawn to him because of who he is. Though he came in humility, he has the birthright of the king. 
See, he will be given rightful rule over the earth. The truth is he comes humbly as a child, as a boy. He's born in humble circumstances, but make no mistake, he is the rightful king over all that is. Isaiah 9, 6 goes on to say, the government will rest on his shoulders. This leader is not a simple a simpleton. He's not a, just a commoner, but he's a king. He comes to carry the weight of the world. He comes to rule over the world. The government, the organizational structure of leadership is going to be placed on his shoulders. He will lead as king. See, the Messiah will be given the rightful position of ruler over the earth. He will establish the kingdom of God. His leadership is the opposite of the usurpers that have taken power in this world. We learn as we read the scriptures that human beings rise to power. Men and women love power and they, they rise to positions of prominence in order to take control. This has gone on on this planet nearly from the beginning. And we see this perpetual nature to take power. We know that there's a realm, a spiritual realm, where Satan and his demons have an aggressive desire to control and to dominate and to lead over what God has created. And yet, Messiah says, uh, there is one coming who is the rightful ruler. He is not a usurper. <laughs> he has the rightful power. And so Jesus will be given the authority and position as a legitimate king, he will lead in stark contrast to leaders who put a yoke of slavery on the people of this earth. We have a propensity as human beings to seek leaders, people that will rule over us. Uh, the nation of Israel demanded that God give him a king. He kept saying, I'm your king. Just let me rule over you. That's the way it's supposed to be. And they said, no, no, we want a king. And he said, well, they're just going to take your sons and put them in the military. He's going to tax you. It's going to be oppressive. They said, no, no, this is what we need. And, and we've been on that track, right? And we can continue on that track today. The desire to have earthly leaders and somehow want what they have to offer. And the truth is, we need some of that. God has established that. But, but if we're looking there, that's really our source of hope, right? If we really think that they are going to give us what we need, provide for us the things we need. Uh, uh, we're off track. Their very nature, their very character, even the best, is to lead towards a place of control, comfort for themselves. God says, listen, I'm your true king. I have your best at heart, I created you. I made you. Trust me. Daniel chapter 7 is one of the famous passages in the Bible as well, a famous chapter. Daniel was also a prophet. He lived on the time when the Assyrians fell from power and the Babylonians came to power and invaded Israel again. And Daniel was taken off with about 10,000 other young men to work for Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. He found himself transitioning to the Medes and Persians when they took over. And so he lived under the regime, under other leaders, pagan kings, um, for much of his life. And he prophesied regarding a future time as well. And in Daniel 7, we get a picture of this rule that the rightful king will have over the earth at the end. 
at the end of this world and this universe. Daniel 7, starting in verse 13, says this. Daniel's having a vision. He says, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race, every nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. A picture is painted for us of the Messiah, of the type of rule he will have. And he's the rightful ruler, the rightful king. And Jesus came to us in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And he offered to the people of Israel the kingdom of God. So I'll be your king. We can establish this right now and you can begin to follow God again. And of course, we know that they ultimately rejected that. Certainly the leaders of the nation rejected that and wanted to uh, discard Jesus and, and tried to get rid of him. And so Jesus, the movement of God, moved from establishment of a physical kingdom to a spiritual one. And, the, and the, the spiritual movement of God and what Jesus came to establish began to be un, unveiled. And the church erupted. And people began to come under the rule and reign of Jesus by putting their trust in him as Savior. And recognizing that the work he did when he came to the earth, the real work he came to do was to pay for the sins of all humanity. And so human beings began to recognize there's a savior here and I need this forgiveness and reconciliation. And so putting my trust in Jesus and his work allows me to come into a place of being made right with God and peace with God. And then I submit to God's rule and the kingdom of God is a very real thing that exists, but only in a spiritual sense at our time. And so this realization of an earthly kingdom, Daniel says, still in the future, but it's coming and we need to understand the power dynamic that's going on. In our country right now, we got a power transition, right? What's gonna happen? We got an election that's going on forever and where's it gonna go and who's gonna end up in power? And it's very controversial, we all feel it and, and uh, it's disturbing and it feels as though there's, you know, are things happening right? And, and is the, man, what's going on? And this is the nature of the human struggle for power. It's how it goes down much of the time. And we can be tempted to think and get stuck in that power struggle and get our focus on that and think that that really is what's going on. And that's going to dictate our future and the world's future and we can be consumed with it. And I just want to give you a sense of God's perspective who sits over all. Let's not forget he made this little uh, world we live in with, with uh, the people involved and uh, he reigns over it. And when these power struggles occur on the earth, don't miss something. A lot of the dynamic is a spiritual battle. It's not just a physical battle for who's gonna run things. It's a spiritual battle of what, who is going to at a spiritual level run the earth and have a say in it. And God is working through his people to establish that rule, to, to influence the earth so that people can come to know him. We have an enemy, Satan, who's working to, to diminish and push back what God's trying to do. And so when we see these earthly conflicts, these struggles, these power battles, 
Don't, don't be confused. That is the dynamic going on. And Psalm chapter two gives us some insight from God's perspective, which we can miss of what really is going on. Listen to this. Psalm two. Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time in futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry. Free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. God scoffs at them. Then in anger, he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, on my holy mountain. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. There's some messianic overtones in that, in that verse. And the idea of the relationship between God the father and son and the role son plays. Not a change in their relationship in terms of their eternal existence together, but the roles, the function. Verse eight, only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The whole earth is your possession. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Now then, you kings, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Listen to this, submit to God's royal son or he will become angry you will be destroyed in the midst of all your activities for his anger flares in an instant. But what joy for all who take refuge in him. Listen, folk, uh, the people in positions of power, all of those games, all those struggles, they, they uh, are held accountable to the same thing all of us are. God is not intimidated. He's not thrown off. He's not sure what to do. He's firmly in control. And the things that he allows happen for that reason, because he allows them. And they're not, uh, they're not a threat in any way to those of us that live under the authority of the king. Because we know he's above them. <laughs> and they're subject to him. And so we're not thrown off. And in a season of unrest, a season of shaking. I uh, heard a pastor say every 50 years, man, there's a shaking and we're in one of those this year. Everybody's attention has been captured, okay? Can't, you can't hardly ignore it. And so everyone, now, what, what is our attention drawn to? Right? What's it drawn to? Well, that's our job. <laughs> we're the people of God. We're the representatives of God on the earth. Our job is to glorify God. Glorify means to reflect. Just shine, right? Just shine God's presence his attitude, his truth to the people around us. And when it's dark and when things are being shaken and there's unsettling, man, light shines brighter in the darkness. And so we have this responsibility, opportunity to step up, to remember who's in charge and to focus our attention on him, not on the problems and issues that everyone else is going through. Man, some of your leaders uh, have been sharing, look, in this season, you can, you can start a conversation at the gas pump just by saying, hey, do you know where you're going if you die? That's kind of a, that's a direct question. But in a season when everybody's thinking about death, it's a very relevant comment. And it starts a conversation. And I hope you 
and I, as the people of God, representatives of God, are seeing the moment we live in and we're taking opportunity to be salt and light, to provide that insight, to take advantage of what God's doing and allowing in the world. That's what's going on. And we got to see it and we got to step up to it and be there and be ready for it. Because the truth is, it's, a, it's a, one of the greatest opportunities we may have ever seen or we may ever see to reflect God and to point people to God. See, as ruler over all the earth, the king, this king, will rule out of never before seen attributes. One of the reasons we want to point people to God right now, we want to reflect him, is that when Jesus came, this Messiah comes, he shatters everything that's been known or perceived or experienced before him. He's altogether different. And what he brings as a person, as a ruler, is, is uh, it's mind-boggling. It's beyond anything that we've ever seen before. His core identity will be wonderful counselor. This passage, these verses we're working through, of the, these different names and, and uh, character traits and qualities and roles that he will fill. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. These are not insignificant. They're uh, monumental. They're earth shattering to have a leader come with this identity, this persona. First of all, the list of these core components. Again, Isaiah 9, 6, just to end this, this verse that we're in this morning, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Some translations put a comma between Wonderful and Counselor, and that's just to separate them as two different uh, words to focus on, but others put them together, Wonderful Counselor together. The point is that Wonderful does have within itself uh, its own meaning. It has within it the concept, the idea of mind-boggling beyond anything you've ever seen or heard before. That's what wonderful means. Here comes a Messiah, a ruler, who will take his rightful place as king over all the earth, and he's going to blow your mind. You've not seen anything like him before. You've not heard anything like him before. You've never encountered a leader like this before. So prepare to have your mind blown by the Messiah. Second qualifier word in here is counselor. Counselor has the idea of a wise king. Think of Solomon. Think of uh, a person you go to when you need counsel. Hey, I gotta make a tough decision. What do I do? And there's that person you can go to to get wisdom. They just know what to tell you. They, they give you the right thoughts. They give you the right direction. That's what we're talking about here. Except wonderful put in front of counselor qualifies counselor to the kind of wisdom the kind of knowledge that you have never had access to, you've never heard it, it's gonna, it's gonna change everything because it's coming from the one who is outside of our sphere, altogether otherworldly, uh, God himself. And so uh, honestly, when we as humans encounter this kind of thing, we have a tendency to be cynical. We go, that really can't be true. <laughs> like, is that real? I don't know that I can believe my ears or believe my eyes. Is that really, is it real? Would that really be something I could look at and, and believe in? It's kind of like the woman who went to visit the farm family and she got there, a uh, beautiful family, and they would spend the day with them and she saw a pig out in the backyard and uh, the pig was missing a leg. And she said uh, to the farmer, hey, what's going on with that pig? Why is it mix missing a leg? 
and the farmer said, oh man, you're not gonna believe this, but this pig's amazing. Uh, you know, this pig is, is kind of unbelievable. I mean, we've had this pig around for a while and, and uh, back last year, um, uh, we were all asleep in the middle of the night and the house caught on fire and we didn't know it, we were sleeping. Well, this pig started uh, making a ruckus, oinking and making noise, woke us up. We were able to get up out of the house, see that it was on fire and call the fire department and put the fire out, save the house. And she was like, wow, it is unbelievable, a pig, you know. And he goes, that's not all, man. Uh, then uh, a couple months later, my daughter fell in a pond and she was drowned and my wife and I were up working in the house. We didn't know about it. Pig came up, started oinking, causing a, a ruckus. We came out of the house, saw our daughter, we were able to save her life. And the woman was like, wow, that's, I've heard of Charlotte's Web, I mean, that's pretty amazing. Are you sure that's real? I mean, that doesn't sound real. Pigs don't do that. But she was kind of getting convinced and she said, well, I still didn't explain why it's missing a leg. What's going on with that? He said, well, when you got a pig that special, you don't eat him all at once. <clears throat> Just got to make sure you're with me. You're with me. Hey, listen, um, there are things that happen that are unbelievable. Sometimes I think people struggle to believe in Jesus because uh, it's so believable, because it's so powerful. And yet that seems like something that couldn't really happen. We face this life, we go through things, we learn things, we learn mostly what doesn't work. We learn mostly what we can't count on. We learn to be disappointed and, you know, and, and, uh, and we get cynical and we start to believe that there really couldn't be a good God who would watch out for us, that would have our best at heart, that would lead us in the right direction, that would have wisdom and counsel that we could really put to use in our lives and that it would produce real good in our lives and we just don't think it exists. And when we come uh, face to face with it, sometimes we don't see it. Or we'd reject it out of hand. Just We don't want to be disappointed again. But I'm here to tell you that, uh, that Isaiah is telling us and the Bible teaches us that Jesus comes with wonderful, unheard of counsel that will, can and will change your life. He is the greatest, possesses all, listen, all knowledge and wisdom. There's nothing that he doesn't have. Does he know what to, how to help you? Does he know what solution you need, what insight, what wisdom? Yeah, there, there isn't anything he doesn't have. He's a soul doctor. He's the greatest psychologist, counselor, pastor, whatever, wise guide. No one like him, no one even close. He knows your deepest needs. He created you. He's not guessing. You come to me and I'll try to listen and I'll try to guess at what you need to hear and what direction you need to go in. He knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. <laughs> you, you, want, you want somebody that can really help you. That's who you go to. He wants to bring healing to our broken hearts, desperately. Our deepest hurts come from two places, typically our own sin and then the sin that's been uh, done to us. And both those things cause a great deal of hurt inside of us. Psychological, emotional, 
And these things are not easy to overcome. And oftentimes we live in a cycle of brokenness for much of our lives. And yet we have Jesus, a wonderful counselor who says, hey, I'm here to help you. I came to connect with you. I came to fix the separation between us so that we could get reconnected and I could help you walk out of the situation you're in and find life and find freedom and find hope and take the yoke of slavery you're under off and set you free. James chapter one, Jesus' half-brother, he describes it this way, starting verse two, he says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Why? Uh, For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. You can grow up. Here's the process. Listen to this. He says, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God. He will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask, listen, when you ask him, very important here, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver. For a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea, expecting to receive anything um, blown and tossed, sorry, by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they're unstable in everything they do. He goes, listen, uh, you have access to the wise counselor. You have access to all wisdom, all knowledge, all insight that exists. But when you go to him, there's two qualifiers. Go and ask. He's not going to say, really? I thought we talked about this yesterday. Wake up, McFly. You know, he's not going to do that. He's not going to give you a hard time. There's no stupid questions. He's not going to, no, come on, come in, ask again. You didn't get it yesterday. Let's do it again. It just keep going. He doesn't, he's not impatient with you. James says, don't, don't worry about that. Don't feel intimidated to come and ask again. Keep going. Ask freely. Open line of communication. But you got to listen when you go. And the problem is, when we go to God, usually what we're looking for is that we've already thought things through. We've already come to our conclusions, our ideas of what's best and right. And we want to go to God for a stamp of approval. Hey, God, just want to talk to you a minute. Just want to make sure I'm on track here. Could you confirm that I'm thinking the right direction and the ideas and solutions I've come up with are right? Would you go ahead and put your stamp on that so I know I'm in the right direction and just confirm that? That's usually how it goes. And uh, the truth is that's divided loyalty. Because when we're using our human wisdom and understanding, when we're using our experience, we're blocking our ability to hear God's. We're stopping it. Listen, uh, we've all been through things and we acquire an ability to get through life. And many of us have the ability to succeed in this life. We can get through it. We can even be successful uh, in the ways that we want to, (laughs) in the definition terms of success that the world offers us. But if you want real success, if you want real quality of life, real uh, richness and fullness, the ability to understand, discover who you really are and live out of that, then you go to God looking just for his wisdom and you put aside your own. And it's very hard, guys. We're proud people. We have our own opinions. You know what they say about opinions, right? But we all have them and we fight for them and we believe in them. We're proud of them. And yet the truth is those block us from hearing from God, getting his help. 
And we gotta get filters, man. We gotta learn how to filter out that stuff and really listen just to God's wisdom and be tuned in just to what he has to say. What I've discovered in my own life and and in others is uh, what really it all begins with, one of the most important pieces in all this, if I'm gonna go to God and look for his wisdom and instruction and really get help, is I really have to want it. I really have to want it. Uh, There's a story told of a young man that came to Socrates, and Socrates was a wise philosopher back, uh, I I believe, in Greece. And so he came, this young man came to Socrates, and he wanted some help. And he said, oh, great, Socrates, I come to you looking for knowledge. And Socrates kind of could identify, you know, um, uh, pompous, numbskulled little kid, you know, so he said, follow me. And they walked out, walked out into the ocean, a little ways up to chest deep, and he said, now what again was it that you were asking for, young man? And, and he said, knowledge, uh, Socrates, I want knowledge. And so Socrates, kind of a big guy, and he grabbed him by his shoulders, pushed him under the water, and held him there for about 30 seconds. And the guy was struggling and sputtering, and lets the young man back up. And he said, what was it that, that you wanted? And he said, knowledge, Socrates, I want knowledge. And he grabbed him again under the water, 40 seconds, let him stay a little longer, and let him pop back up. What, 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 what was it you wanted, young man? What was it you're looking for? Knowledge, Socrates, I want knowledge. Boop, back under the water, a little longer. Came sputtering up to the top. What is it that you want? He said, air, I need air. And Socrates said, uh, when you want knowledge, as bad as you want air right now, you're gonna get it. It's funny how we have access to things. God's given us access to his insight, his knowledge, his direction. And the truth is we don't always want it. We just don't. We want, we want what we want. We want our idea to be right. We want him to say what we want. We want that to be confirmed. And we're really not looking with everything aside for just what is God saying to me. And uh, it's, a, it's a problem, guys, because we have the King of Kings, we have the Messiah came to rule over the world but really he wants to rule in your life and my life. He's not a king that we gotta make an appointment with and hope to get to see in a year because he's so busy, if ever. He's a king that we can talk to right now and we can get his wisdom and his direction. We gotta be hungry for it. We gotta know we need it. Do you want hope? Do you wanna stop living in fear? You want to start moving forward instead of being stuck in the same spot? Do you want to gain victory in your life? The only way that I know of, it starts with the want to. Who are you going to listen to? Who is it that you're going to go to? Are you really willing to go with undivided loyalty? Listen, we live in a season right now where, um, just, just bluntly, like we, we don't need any more human wisdom. <laughs> you don't need it from me. I don't need it from you. We don't need it from each other. We need God's wisdom. We need wise counsel. We need wonderful counsel from a God who will actually point us in the right direction, tell us how to get out of and move forward in our situation, and, um, and teach us to walk <clears throat> out of this season into a future that he has for us. My prayer is that we as a people, that you as a people moving into Christmas, that myself that we would begin to reconnect to our need for God, our desperation for him, and be able to live that way with authenticity and sincerity. 
God, thank you for your goodness to us, for your calling to be connected to you, the way you brought uh, salvation to us. We had no idea that we needed you. We would have never known nothing we could do on our own. And yet you came to bring leadership to our lives, to bring hope to our world, to bring light to our darkness. God, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. Uh, May we get on our knees. May we put aside and filter out our own stuff and be desperate for you. God, I know you wanna move us from a place of self-sufficiency to a place of sufficiency on you and a place where we are reflecting you to the world around us so that people can see you in this great time of need. Use us as individuals, use our families, use us as a church. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So you guys have to hear this. Um, There's a story that fits perfectly with what Pastor John just talked about. Um, And I just heard about it um, yesterday afternoon when we were talking as a worship ministry um, about different ways that God has shown us wisdom, um, given us a breakthrough um, in our lives in different ways. And so we were just sharing as a worship team different, different ways that God has done that in each of our lives. And I, I want you to hear what Steve um, shared with us last night at um, worship team. So this is Steve Meyer. He has been serving faithfully on the team. I want you to hear his story. Uh, I would like to share with you this morning what the wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ, done in my life. Um, I was living in a world of sin. I was playing in a band. I played in the band for 22 years. Uh, had a beautiful wife and two children. Uh, it was not a good life. I was, I was uh, to the point where I was going to lose my family, uh, destroy my own body in alcohol. And uh, towards the end of them 22 years, uh, we had another family member that was admitted to treatment. And uh, they asked the family to go to support him. Uh, I didn't think I needed to do that, but I went. Uh, and I tell you, coming out of that meeting, in that meeting, God spoke to my heart. Oh, so powerful. And uh, he spoke to my heart, and I walked out of that meeting. I looked at my older brother, and I said, I will never touch a drop of alcohol in my life. That was in August of 1998, August 16th of 1998. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, was baptized, and raised in newness of life. I, <laughs> I never have, I walked away, I, I left the band, I never touched another drop of alcohol, I never went through treatment. It was the power of our wonderful, mighty Jesus Christ, His power working in my life. And to Him all the glory. <laughs> 